Cause you can begin again Honey, you can begin again You can begin again Honey, you can begin again You can Welcome to episode 1495 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. Today is the first episode of our 2020 season preview podcast series. This is, I believe, the eighth year that we have previewed the season, and every single time they ended up playing the season. So we've got to keep previewing. So for those of you who haven't been with us through this odyssey before, we get guests on to talk about all 30 teams, and we do it two teams per episode. And last year, and also this year, we are doing it in order of projections as we start the series based on Fangraph's standings right now. And we're going middle out, like Silicon Valley. So we're starting with the teams that are projected to have middling records. And then we're moving out toward the edges. And then we'll finish with the best and worst projected team. And so today, we are starting with two NL Central teams, which happen to be grouped together, the Reds and the Brewers. So later in this episode, we will be talking to Derek Van Riper about the Brewers. And first, we will be talking to our pal C. Trent Rosecrans about the Reds. And the goal here is just sort of a general overview of the season to come, review some of the offseason moves, maybe some big picture stuff, talk about some interesting individual players, and force our guests to give us a win total projection at the end of the thing. And generally, we'll be doing them twice a week so that one of our episodes each week will still be non-team preview related emails or guests or whatever we have in mind. And of course, We will still bring you banter before the team preview episodes on most days. Although today we don't have a ton to talk about, so we're just going to jump right into it. And no one can accuse us of not talking about the Reds because we are going to start with the Reds. So to do that, we are joined, as we often or always are, by C. Trent Rosecrans, who is a senior MLB writer for The Athletic. Hello, Trent. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing all right. So I felt a bit bad for the Reds last year because they had a busy offseason and they made some aggressive moves and then they had a 75 and 87 record, which was disappointing. But under the hood, they seemed stronger than that. They were only outscored by 10 runs. They underperformed their base runs record by nine wins, which was the most of any team. So obviously they have not been complacent this winter and just banked on better luck. But is better luck a reason for some optimism? I think better luck and better offense is, Mm -hmm. I mean, and a hundred and what are we up to six, almost 166 million? Yeah. I mean, that's... That's reason for some optimism, and, and, and there's a lot of optimism out there in Red's land. You know, maybe there's uh, more muted optimism in baseball at large, but the one of the big things is I think they are relatively better. They're the one team, basically, though, they're the one team in this division that's gotten better on paper since mm-hmm. the end of the season, and that that adds to that optimism, I believe. If if you saw one of those other teams, the Cardinals or, or Brewers or Cubs, go out and actually make some moves i mean not even a lot of them i don't think there would be as much optimism as there is because these improvements happened and they didn't happen in a vacuum 
I'm curious about the timing of these improvements. So, you know, they, they signed Nick Castellanos, they, they signed Mike Moustakas, and, and you can lump in, I think, the trade for Trevor Bauer late, just before the trade deadline last mm-hmm. year, because it was pretty clear they weren't contending last year. So you can think of that almost as a free agent signing as well. And I have my own opinion about this, I'm, but I'm curious about your opinion, and I'm curious what you think the front office's opinion was. Are these moves that reflect a belief that the moment has come that this team has been building up and now it's the time to really strike? Or are they the moves of a team that says, well, we finished fourth in the last six years. That's too long for a rebuild. We're not going seven years. We're not going eight years. So now we, we just have, we have to provide a, a credible you know team at this moment. I think that's a big part of it. Quite honestly, that's that's a really big part of it because that's a guy who just or it goes back to ownership. You know, Bob Castellini is in charge. Uh, he he bought the team between the two thousand five two thousand six season and came in saying I, I want to win. He came from the Cardinals group. The Williams family was also there as well, and he made some promises. Wanted to see it, and he's gotten older. You know, most it's owning a. Owning professional sports franchises, for the most part, is not a young man's game. This is a guy who bought this team and, and wanted to bring championship baseball back to Cincinnati, and he hasn't done that yet. And I think there is some time ticking. Nobody has told me this, and and I've talked to Bob. I've talked to, to a lot of people. Nobody said this, but I still get the feeling like this is someone who wants to see a winner. He's not getting younger. You know, I, I, looking at his age, I'm trying to find it. I think he's around 80 or so. And so he's still in good shape. But, you know, at, at what time is is it right? And, you know, they saw for so long, like, how can we get good pitching here? They had the pitching. The starting pitching was good last year. And they just said, well, if we can go out and get the pitching in one offseason, can't we get the hitting too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I was going to wait to bring up the pitching, but you brought it up. I might as well continue with that. So the Reds overhauled their whole approach to pitching last year, as well as some of their staff. But they had Derek Johnson come in. They had Caleb Cotham come in. And this winter, they went all in on driveline-style development, and they hired Kyle Bodie and others. And Trevor Bauer is around, of course. And they pitched really well last year after years of pitching poorly. And they have the seventh-highest projected pitching war this season right now. And obviously, a lot of that comes from pitchers they have imported. But what tangible changes have you seen in development or philosophy that have maybe made a difference since 2018? You know, I think a lot of it is Derek Johnson and just his approach. And also, you also have to look at having Derek Johnson here helps bring guys in. You know, they signed Wade Miley as a free agent this year, and he is a guy who pitched for Derek Johnson in Milwaukee. Sonny Gray, they traded for, but part of that trade was signing an extension. And getting someone like that to sign on for more years at Great American Ballpark as a starting pitcher has been very difficult. And so having Derek Johnson, just his presence has brought, helped bring in at least those two starting pitchers. And and that's a that's no small feat when you look at who this team has had to sign as a starting pitcher. I guess like their biggest free agent starting pitcher signing before this was uh, Eric Milton. <laughs> I mean, in this ballpark. And that just... That did not turn out well, and it's it's an indictment on um, the reputation of the ballpark and how much that comes into things. And when they signed Derek Johnson, when they hired Derek Johnson, I just remember getting a couple texts that day. It was at Halloween, 
and I was at uh, a party with my daughter. And I got a couple texts just saying, oh, maybe the Reds are serious. And then this offseason, you kind of got some of those looks, too, when they hired Kyle Bodie. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's looking at overhauling and, and being being a total organization and not just these little fixes. And it was trying to set the foundation while also helping out what you have on the field immediately. And and they've seemingly done a pretty good job at that. Time will tell a lot on the um, Kyle Bodie and the rest. Yeah, so about Bodie and Bauer, since they are often paired together and they are figures of some intrigue, Bauer had a really mercurial season in 2019, and I know it's been reported that he was dealing with some injuries. I don't know how much of an impact that had. So I guess what's the outlook for him? Because, again, he's said that he's going to go year to year with contracts, which would mean that he'll be a free agent at the end of the year. And then how does Bodie's deal work? Because he is still affiliated with Driveline, and yet he is also working with the Reds in their minor league system. So how is that sort of structured? Uh, it's kind of structured as, I don't know, it's almost like a he can keep everything he has at driveline. And uh, I, I I don't know how much the Reds worry about that as much as other teams because, you know, there, there could be some proprietary things that they bring to driveline. Mm-hmm. It'll be an interesting juggling act. I'm not sure anybody's sure exactly how it's going to work out yet. However, you know, a lot of the stuff that he's going to be doing is stuff that he hasn't been able to do before. And that will be in, in, in dealing with minor leaguers and, and exactly what they do on their off days, you know, what their throwing programs look like during the season. It's not going to be the same as it has been in the past. And, and and I think it's one of those things that he, I know just from talking to him, he has some really different ideas drawn up and the Reds are going to let him do it. And so it's going to be a, for him, a way to, implement some of those ideas in a real world setting and not just an off-season setting so i think that's going to be fascinating to see what things are like in chattanooga and and dayton Mm -hmm. in in july and august yeah and as for bauer does he have any big off-season project this year or is it besides uh the mlb network show (laughs) right mlb radio (laughs) yes um you know talking to him it's pretty much just his as usual He's going to do his Trevor Bauer stuff. I know he spent a lot of time at Driveline, and he's done some of those things. I've talked to Derek Johnson about this. He believes very strongly in Trevor Bauer and what Trevor can do. And he, he it's, it's very similar. Talking to Derek Johnson about Trevor Bauer is very similar to how he felt about Sonny Gray. That he felt that pitcher... And what he was doing was much better than the results and that he had a chance to help him pitch better than the results he had the year before. And if it works, you know, 80% as well as it did with Sonny Gray, that's a, that's a, that's going to be a good thing for the Reds. So, of course, uh, Sonny Gray was good once he started pitching with the Reds. Trevor Bauer has made 10 starts for the Reds and it did not go well at all. And I I will admit that I didn't watch a lot of Reds baseball in September. And so a lot of the Trevor Bauer kind of final two months took place sort of like I was aware of it, but not watching it that closely. So I'm- Because you shouldn't I'm, have been. <laughs> right. You were for all of us. I, you I was were paid taking to. that Right. You were taking that for the team. <laughs> I'm curious what your take is, what, what it was like, what those 10 starts were like from your vantage point, whether they felt- I mean, given the 
people involved and the stakes maybe that were involved. I almost have in my head like a narrative that maybe those games were that I don't know that that they were abnormal that there was that maybe there was a little bit more experimentation or maybe a little more finding one's footing or something uh, as Ben noted there's the possibility that there was some injury but did you like did you come away with a feeling uh, about him from those 10 starts or did it just feel like something that you pack in a box store in the garage uh, in the memories folder and uh, start afresh this year like with 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 that all kind of like not even in your mind And if I can add to that, I noticed that his spin rate really skyrocketed in September. I don't know if anyone's asked him about that. But I have not, it, no. it was uh, almost sort of suspicious because he has been known to experiment with sticky stuff and demonstrate that it can produce a, a big effect in spin rate. And he's always said in the past that he would not use that in games and obviously has resented other people allegedly using it. But I don't know. That caught my eye. I know nothing about it, but it was a, a strange extreme spike there. No, if you if you could text me in another like uh, another like uh 14 days two weeks and, and remind sure. me of that uh, you know watching him over those 10 starts it was confounding honestly more than anything because you know we've all seen guys who have been good and then you're just like man it ain't there you would see innings where it was there and then there was even a, you know a start in washington where the nationals players were saying oh yeah he's tipping his pitches we knew what was coming I don't know if you guys have heard about this. Apparently, you're much better as a hitter if you know what's coming. (laughs) Depends. Yeah, well, there is that. It depends on who you ask and which data set you look at. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, I I think there were some times with that. I think that might have played into it. The stuff still looked, I mean, if you look at it, there there were pitches that seemed unhittable. And then the next inning, he'd go out and just get batted around. And I don't know. Um, He never looked done. And he didn't look except for the results a lot of times like someone who wasn't good does that make sense you know what i'm saying where it's like it looked good until you know it left the yard it's i mean it's such a weird career at this point because that has been true since college and like there's basically been one good year right one year with an era under four basically one year with a fip under four he's a little bit under four a couple of other times but if it weren't Trevor Bauer, the pitcher whose you know myth making has uh, followed him from college. I wonder what we would what we would make of his career at this point. I mean, I, I don't like <laughs> this is going to seem really weird. Like, would we be having a conversation about him as like Gil Mesh if he were not Trevor Bauer? Like the sort of like, yeah. or or are like so? It's very confounding. It's very hard to know what to make of of any of it and to know whether in his 30s he's going to be the best pitcher in baseball or whether that 2018 season is really the outlier. And that's why those 10 starts feel like they loom very large in this like Cincinnati Reds experiment that they're embarking on. And and I would think, yes. The other part is they say, well, if you want to be the, the devil's advocate, he's their third starter. You know, he has that higher reputation, but... You know, you also have Luis Castillo and Sonny Gray. I mean, we talked about Sonny Gray, but man, do we can talk about Luis Castillo. Mm-hmm. That guy's really good. Yeah. So yes, and they gave they paid a high price to get um, Trevor Bauer, but it was kind of interesting to just to see that I don't know the boost that that gave the clubhouse because you know the last two months of a team with that kind of record can be tough, but 
they were as energized as ever right after that because it set a tone for 2020 that as soon as they made that deal on July 30th, 2019, that day said, we want to win in 2020 and we're not going to mess around. And so that was interesting. And now does Trevor Bauer, I guess this is the question we were just asking, does Trevor Bauer, the idea of Trevor Bauer live up on the field to the mystique of Trevor Bauer? And, and, and we'll see. So we've talked about some of the other major moves that have been made. Moustakas, Castellanos, Miley, Pedro Strope also, Shogo Akiyama. A couple of those players are outfielders, and the Reds already had a bunch of outfielders. So how will they distribute this playing time? You know, I mean, half of it is, let me see who's on the squad when they when they break camp. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I could see a trade coming. Um, otherwise... Because, yeah, you look at it and you say, well, you don't sign Nick Castellanos to not play pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Shogo Akiyama, they give $21 million to over three years. That's that's not an ins- insignificant layout. And then you still have Nick Senzel, and you're saying, no, Nick Senzel is going to play the outfield. And it's been a question since early in Nick Senzel's career is just where is he going to play, especially once they signed a Eugenio Suarez to a long-term deal. Uh, then he played some shortstop. They tried him in shortstop in spring training, and, and just all you need to know is they didn't try him that much there in the minor leagues after that. And uh, he played some second base. And so then last offseason, they said, well, hey, let's try the outfield. And he, he played okay out there. He struggled at first, but this guy who's never played outfield in his life, and you're telling him to – take a couple weeks in spring training and then make his big league debut. Oh, and do it in a position you've never played. So I think there's a huge question about Nick Senzel and his future. And that only kind of was exaggerated when they announced that Eugenio Suarez is likely going to start the season on the disabled list. Um, It could be close. um, But, but so then it's all of a sudden you're like, Oh, does, do you move him back? And I, from what they've told us is no, the idea is he's, he's going to be playing center field more often than not. So then what do you do? I don't know. It's it's going to be a juggling act. I mean, you could put two different outfields against depending on what who's the starting pitcher because Jesse Winker has not hit well against left-handed pitchers. Philip Irvin has. And, uh, you know, Aristides Aquino. You talk about all these outfielders they have, but how many outfield answers do they have? They don't have, like, one complete guy that you just say, okay, here he is. You know, you can you can go down. Akiyama. Can he handle the big leagues? Is in, and does he play center field? What position is he? Aristides Aquino, is he the guy in August, the guy in September, somewhere in the middle, which I think they would be fine with, um, but it has to be somewhere in the middle. Jesse Winker, can he actually play defensively? Can he hit left-handers? Phil Irvin, can, can he be an everyday guy? Probably not, but he can mash against lefties and play the corner outfields okay, center. He can play there some. Nick Castellanos is he going to be good enough to make up for his fielding? Is his bat enough to take over his fielding? I mean, these are all legitimate, legitimate questions. And there's not one guy that you just say, here he is. Oh, and Nick Senzel. And we just talked about that. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I mean, it it is, they have a lot of outfielders, but they don't have any, they don't have anybody without question in the outfield. 
Mm -hmm. And since, as you mentioned, has switched positions, he's also switched agents. He's had his yeah, he's had his shoulder labrum repaired, so he's pretty much changed everything. Might he also change teams, or does that seem unlikely at this point? You know, it doesn't seem likely to me because because, and this is kind of how I put it: it's it's almost a process of elimination. If you're going to trade Nixon Zell, you're going to have to seriously upgrade. Basically, your two question spots. Those are shortstop and catcher. It's shortstop. If Francisco Lindor isn't getting traded, what shortstop is that is worth trading for a Nixon Zell? I mean, I guess you you have Carlos Correa, but is a new GM, is that their first thing they're going to do in Houston? I don't know. And Corey Seager? Well, I don't see him getting traded unless the Dodgers have Francisco Lindor, you know, and, and Dansby Swanson. Well, is a third base really going to get, is that what the, the Braves are looking for? I know they talked to um, Donaldson and all that, but I mean, they have some internal options that, that could, could work there. So I, I just don't, I don't see a match. And then the same kind of goes with the other part would be catcher. Well, J2 Raul Muto, they tried to get him last year. Didn't work out. I don't think the Phillies are looking to trade him. Yasmani Grandal, they went after him in, in free agency. He didn't sign here. So where's that clear other person? I just don't see it. I would just like to note that the Gil Mesh off the top of my head has not satisfied me as a comp. And so I've thought more about it. And I, I would say that if you were going to do a comp for the, for the Trevor Bauer. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bauer, this is exactly why I listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I think that there are two options here. One is One would be maybe Jake Odorizzi would be the, the sort of I'm ah. not excited about it comp and then i think that feeds into the well he's he only has to be their number three starter you know even odorizzi is a floor isn't that bad the other would be maybe ubaldo jimenez which is the i still hold that excitement but i recognize that there's a little bit more of a sense of disaster than you would have liked to admit over a guy who was a you know anyway all right joey i like those by the way thank you joey Votto in spring training was wearing that shirt that said decline phase and uh, it showed uh, like a like a graph, like a sort of a classic sort of aging curve graph that just goes straight down after like 32 or 33. And I couldn't figure out what the joke was there. I wasn't sure which joke or what statement he was making. I don't know if you do, but like I didn't know if it was if the joke was like Joey Votto is so honest that he is admitting like he is he can acknowledge that, you know, we're all going to, you know, decline and die. Or if it was about like sort of mocking that notion and uh, saying like, I'm using this to motivate myself, which is what you would expect from a, a, a typical athlete, I think. I don't know if you know what the statement he was making with that shirt was uh, and whether it changes anything that he actually had a pretty severe and startling decline last year and, and kind of the year before as well. Yeah, we, we saw that. We saw that shirt early in spring training, or early in the season, even beyond spring training, and then we didn't see it much longer. Oh, that might answer that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he just didn't like the shirt as much. I, I'm never going to try to get into Joey Votto's head, because nobody, like, he constantly surprises me. That's why I, so often, I, I feel bad, and I was actually texting with Joey the other day about something, and I just said, like, one of the things... Like, I feel like I just sometimes do these Q&As and I just get out of the way and I just print them because I don't know what I add because I'm just so fascinated by the way this guy thinks that he's constantly surprising me that I just like 
throwing those raw Q and A's up because usually whatever I'm thinking about that comes out pretty quickly and he will answer them. And I, I don't know. I just, I never try to get into his head, but I'm so glad he's around so I can ask him. Uh, he's the most fascinating player I'm sure I will ever cover. And, you know, everybody hopes that there's more left in him that was last year, you know, cause 2018, you could say, Oh, is this the anomaly or is this the start of a gradual decline? And the hope was it was an anomaly. And then 2019, you're like, oh, maybe it wasn't a gradual decline. It was a, it was a more precipitous decline. And, 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 and maybe this is the final answer, or maybe it's already been answered and, and many of us don't want to see it. So I think 2020 will certainly be pretty telling for, for Joey Votto and the future of Joey Votto. I'm always curious about how skills will translate from Japan, and Akiyama was a great on-base guy there. He had pretty good power there, too. How are those skills expected to translate? How do the Reds hope they'll translate? And what is his defensive reputation? Now, the defensive reputation, I'm going to start with that one because that's the one that's most... You know, I have people saying, oh, he's he's not what he once was, and it, the ball's... You know, someone told me yesterday, it's just not the same over there. You know, they they all, they never have to go back on balls because there's not a, the same kind of power. But, I mean, there there's still guys who hit 40-some home runs. It's just not every guy. I'm interested to see how it goes. The one saving grace is that he will be playing 81 games at Great American Ballpark. You know, Shinsu Chu played center field at Great American Ballpark in 2013 <laughs> right. and didn't kill them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so... If he's playing some center, if he's playing some right, he shouldn't kill them. And maybe he's just going to be like the, you know, he's going to be next to some guys who aren't the prettiest, so he can right. look better. Well, um, yeah. I, I was going so. for an analogy, but I, I didn't want to, you know. <laughs> that's what I was thinking about is that you've, if you some days have an outfield, that's Akiyama Castellanos Winker. That's uh, not exactly the ideal defensive unit. He looks really good. <laughs> He's relatively the best outfielder in that outfield by far. Best outfielder in that outfield by far. Regardless of the Reds have said since the beginning with Akiyama's, they want him they they feel comfortable with him playing all three spots. And he's a veteran guy. He's done that in Japan. He would move over with uh, Samurai Japan to to play right because of a different center fielder. He was not that guy who had to be in center field and would, would, would go over. And they, they feel like he has that ability to be a good defender. You know, there are other people who are saying he's no longer the center fielder that he once was. You know, yes, he won the gold glove again, but that's a 16 league. You know, that's like being the best defender. You know, that's like winning the NL Central gold glove. <laughs> and it, so it, it is a little bit different. It's again, it's it's one of those things. Let's see how it translates. Nobody knows him real well. I talked to the Jap- the people in Japan I've talked to say he's pretty good. He's never going to hurt you mentally, and he's never going to hurt you effort-wise. Those things are not a question. Um, he's got good speed, not great speed. I, I, I'm guessing we don't have stack cast, but like Nick Castellanos' stack cast speed was, impre- was like impressive to me. He's not going to be as fast measured by that i think as nick castellanos which is kind of surprising but he's a guy who's apparently takes really good routes and does all those little things right now they don't care about him getting having power they think 
he'll get some homers just because again where he plays that depends upon of course also on the ball what ball we have this year they just want him to be on base for when Nick Castellanos and Mike Moustakas and Aristides Aquino or, or anybody else, these other guys that they think can hit the ball out of the park. They they just want two run homers instead of solo homers. The one outfielder whose defense I think everybody agrees is, is quite good is Michael Lorenzen, who <laughs> yeah. I, I actually kind of worried that the plans to use him in a two-way role last year might be kind of might stop because he was too valuable as a pitcher that he was actually a, a you know really a very good reliever he uh, had in some ways uh his best year last year but uh in September he was frequently used in both roles sometimes in the same game uh pitcher and center field or pitcher in a corner outfield or pitcher and pinch runner and I think we all sort of dream of a future of baseball where there's a lot more of this and we think it'd be really fun and uh, potentially strategically rich uh, you have seen a, a, a small but um, but definite version of this now play out for a year. Is it fun? Do you get used to it? Like, is it? Does it give you a little jolt when when he jogs out to center field? And uh, is there a future baseball where this is more common? Do you think? I think there can be. And and if this team's off season had gone differently, I think there's a possibility it could have been this year. You know, if we we have the 26-man thing now with the uh, limits on how many pitchers. Well, if you get him enough starts and you're not going to hurt yourself, whatever the, the actual wording that comes down is. I'm not sure. Have you guys seen it yet? I don't know that I've seen. I saw like the, one uh, draft of what they have to do. You mean the three batter, or the three batter no. minimum or the... No, to be classified as a two-way player. Oh, to be classified as a two-way player. I have not seen. I also haven't seen... I don't know if they've even approved the final wording on the three batter minimum yet, but there's also, I think there has not been total clarity on whether that would apply fully for like a Waxahachie swap, if it would be conceivable yeah. that someone like Lorenzen could play position in between batters, or if it would have to be three full batters and all that sort of thing. Would it have to be three consecutive? Could he come in for one, go to center field for three, and then come back in for two? Would that count as a three and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah. and But also like also on the roster, because if you are limiting and you're in this game now where as soon as you say everybody has eight pitchers or eight-man bullpen, you know, the, there's going to be the thought like, well, how can we get 14? And Michael Lorenzen's a way you can get 14. Because if, if if they had gotten fewer outfielders, say they, instead of spending their money, and there's like one way, you know, there's one version that this offseason could have come where they spent their money on Yasmani Grandal, uh, Zach Wheeler, and Didi Gregorius, all guys they had interest in. Well, then you're still rolling out this outfield. Then maybe you can see a guy like Lorenzen getting 20 starts or, or whatever you need to get him classified as a two-way guy and and maybe not even or maybe even as a position player or whatnot so i don't know i, I just think on a different off season in a different universe you know your alternate reality there could have been a way to use him to manipulate that that the roster so i'm confused by that and i'm i to answer your question yeah every time he comes in it's still great and he is a really good defender he's an amazing athlete the only guy that I, I've seen, there's probably the only athlete on this team that's been better. Well, I don't know. Billy Hamilton's a hell of an athlete too. But like Aroldis Chapman, there's that similarity. There was a game several years ago 
when Aroldis Chapman for some reason was running the bases and went it was at Wrigley Field and went first to third and it was just like the most amazing thing I've seen because the guy is just in somersaulting the whole way <laughs> different that was at home man <laughs> pulling back the back issues on that one but yeah no i mean this guy lorenzen is just this unbelievable athlete and so there is still some excitement to seeing him do that and come in in the game to pinch hit to pinch run especially because dude can fly well i was going to ask you about aquino but as you noted he is basically a big question mark so i i guess i won't uh make you turn him into an answer because maybe no one can yet yeah but it's crazy <laughs> he um he outward you know his two months were more valuable than uh four months of yasiel puig yeah right sure and he was setting records his first few weeks in the majors and then it kind of went away <laughs> but yeah i mean he had that game where he had you know an exit velocity of like 110 on a homer and then a hundred mile an hour throw from the outfield mm-hmm. and and you know i think some of that that other the the fielding part and some of those other things that he's able to do were overshadowed by that you know that that month where every mm-hmm. other thing thrown to him was in the seats you know is it, it was funny i did a story cuz he had almost the exact same first intro to the big leagues as uh, Reese Hoskins yeah and i talked to Reese Hoskins about it and i i think cuz the phillies were here like right in right at the end of August and like right when he kind of went into the tank and did what Reese Hoskins did his first year. And so the, the, you know, the parallels it, at first were eerie. And then when you, they both had just that, that second month like nosedive and those were so similar. So it's a, it's kind of an interesting parallel as those two. Mm -hmm. And then I was just going to mention Suarez because to me, he was sort of the face of the peak home run year, not to disparage him as a player because he is an excellent player regardless of the ball, but because of the ball in part, he became an absolute monster and hit 49 home runs, which even now, every time I look at it, just it gives me a little shock to see that on his stat line. And uh, he was you know, not really a better hitter than he had been the season before when he was already very good. He just hit a lot more homers as uh, many players did. And so he just had shoulder surgery last week because Mm -hmm. he hurt himself in a pool. Do we know how he hurt himself in a pool? And is that expected? If there was a trampoline involved? (laughs) Yeah. Was he dunking? (laughs) And is that expected to linger into the season and, and potentially hurt that power? They they believe that he should be ready pretty early in the season. Now, um, when I talked to, you know, uh, Nick Crawl, it was, uh, I guess, that Tuesday because that was he – had, he had surgery the same day that uh, Castellanos' press conference. Uh-huh. So I believe that was Tuesday. So th- that, you know, that still was relatively early, but they – they're hopeful that he's back pretty early. And again, so much so that they're not thinking about Nixon's L in the infield. It'll probably be Mike Mustakas over there for a little bit. You can throw in some of their bench guys, a Kyle Farmer, a Josh Van Meter, maybe a platoon of the two at second base um, until Suarez gets back. And then Mustakas goes back to second base. So, yeah, but like you, like you were saying about Suarez and that jumping out at you, the one that got me is not the raw number. But the fact that he set the record for the most homers by a Venezuelan in a season. Mm-hmm. So he had more homers in a season. And again, this is not to denigrate Eugenio Suarez. I think he's a really good player. But he had more homers in a season than Miguel Cabrera or Andres Galarraga or 
or Maglia or Ordonez. I mean, you know, it's just it kind of blows the mind. And that is emblematic of, of the juice ball. So we're not getting the 70 home runs of the juice player edition, but the fact that we're getting the guy like a Eugenio Suarez hits 49 is yeah. And, and more than more, just more than Miguel Cabrera ever hit. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, we have always ended these things. Oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> At least we've been on before can and I you know just what note, to expect. <laughs> I, just, I would just like to note that Jose Iglesias had 11, which might be even more outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> and that and then anyone swore that 49. And Freddie Galvis had 23. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Trent's been here before, so he knows that we are putting him on the spot here. As usual, this is uh, just for fun. Don't uh, take it to Vegas or anything. But no. people like when these, we end these things with team win total predictions. And I think they understand the spirit in which those predictions are offered. Namely that we all know nothing. and uh, baseball Except for is, Lindsay uh, Adler. Yes, Lindsay Adler's is great, at least was last year. Even if you had predicted the Reds' true talent last year, you still would have been off by nine wins or something, probably. So that just goes to show how impossible a task this is. But all of that said, how many wins for the Cincinnati Reds? I guess the good news is I don't remember what I said last year. <laughs> Neither do I. I think I think doesn't I, exist. Yeah. Um, if you took the under of what I said last year, you won, I think. I'm going to go 86 wins. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, 76 <laughs> losses? Yeah, um, very reasonable. Math. Yeah. I wonder what the division would look like if the Reds do end up with 86 wins because, like, someone's got to have more than 86, you'd think. Probably you'd think. not necessarily, but but maybe. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I mean, I, I can see anywhere from 79 to 88. So maybe I'm being optimistic. Mm-hmm. It's not my usual want, but why not? It's <laughs> yeah. early. Yeah. All right. Well, it'll be sort of a fascinating season because of the four-way virtual tie, it looks like at this point, at least according to the projections. So, Let me ask you a quick – can I ask you a quick question? Let's no. say that Let's say they do win 86, and let's say uh-huh. that doesn't get them to the playoffs. Like, yeah. I don't know. The Cubs or the Cardinals or the Brewers managed to win, you know, 92. Is the general mood happiness successful season in that case, or would it be seen as um, as a as an unsuccessful season? I think it would depend almost on how those came. You know, like what's the last impression? Was it you were fighting till the end and just didn't make it? Maybe then that's less. Or maybe if the Cubs or somebody just goes out and win ninety four games and surprises everybody, and like wow, man, give it our best shot. I I, I honestly don't know. Because there are so many questions then going into 2021 because you, you have Trevor Bauer and Anthony DiScalfani as free agents, uh, depending on exactly what the season looks for Nick Castellanos. I mean, to me, it looks like a one-year deal, even though it's nominally a four-year deal if he has two opt-outs. And he also, you know, the other interesting part about that one is he's gets $16 million this year, and it's a 16-annual average value. But in 2021, he gets 14. So, and then has an opt out after that as well. So it's almost like uh, expecting him to do well and opt out. And if he has a question, he's going to opt out because he doesn't want to pick a pay cut. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, that's a lot of me rambling for saying I don't know, which I guess is what I've done this whole time. So, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> 
Looks like you predicted 81 wins last year, which uh, that's, you know, about right. That's one one win off from what their Pythagorean record was. So yeah. I'm going to give you credit for that. <laughs> you know, we can't all be Lindsay. <laughs> right. All right. Well, you can find Trent on Twitter at CTrent. And you can, of course, find him writing about the Reds all the time at The Athletic Cincinnati. Thank you, as always, Trent. Thank you, guys. I always love doing this every year. Except for that last question. Except for the last question. (laughs) Okay, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Derek Van Riper to discuss the Milwaukee Brewers. I am waiting, should I be waiting? It is time to talk about the Brewers, and to do that, we are bringing on Derek Van Riper, who is a writer and podcaster for The Athletic. He writes about the Brewers and fantasy baseball, and he hosts or co-hosts The Athletic's Fantasy Baseball Podcast, which is called Fantasy Baseball Podcast, as well as Rates and Barrels and the Brewers Podcast, Section 422. You do a lot of podcasting. Thank you for doing a little bit more podcasting with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I I like talking. Uh, I don't know if people like listening to me, but I like talking. (laughs) I hope so. You'd have a pretty lousy job if not. (laughs) So the past two off seasons were pretty slow across the league, and the Brewers took advantage of that to make some splashes with Yelich and Kane and Grandal. And this winter, a lot of other teams were making splashes, and the Brewers were sort of the ones getting splashed. But that does not mean that they were not busy because they were very busy. So coming off of two playoff seasons, two years of pretty strong attendance, they've had a ton of turnover this winter. More than half of the players from last year's opening day roster are gone. I think 12 of the players from the wild card game roster even are gone, thanks to non-tenders and Holy trades cow. and that's free agent a, departures. That's incredible. Yeah, it's a, a lot of turnover. And after running a team record payroll last season, the payroll looks in line to be quite a lot lower in 2020. So what was driving this turnover? I guess it's a combination of factors, but did the Brewers set out to say we need to spend less money or is there a strategy here other than cost savings? I don't think it's entirely savings by design. I think it was a more active market that probably forced the Brewers to go to plan B and and plan C sort of options for their offseason. Uh, you know, back when the offseason started, I went through the process of looking at the players they were going to lose and likely non-tender and looked at some of the free agents they could bring in. And I thought they were a great fit to spend up on Zach Wheeler. I thought they were a great fit to upgrade at shortstop by paying for Didi Gregorius, even on a, a short-term deal. I thought he made a lot of sense uh, as kind of a this year's Yasmani Grandal relative to, you know, cost and how the market was going to treat him. And I just think having more teams in the middle of the pack, especially aggressively pursuing free agents, trying to get better, made it different than the last two winters because the Brewers were the team that were just kind of left standing and able to get a great deal on Grandal last offseason and to get Lorenzo Cain very unexpectedly uh, two Januaries ago. So it's just turned into this sort of thing where the perception for most people in the fan base, they're very skeptical because uh, under... Bud Selig's ownership group and some terrible GMs for decades. This was a very poorly run team that didn't spend money. 
uh, I think there's sort of some some scars there that kind of come up when when the team doesn't get competitive for top end talent. And the closer you look at it, the more you realize like this is just the team trying to tread water in, in terms of staying in the thick of having a, a playoff worthy roster. Yeah, I was wondering about that because, you know, they had a run differential last year of, I think, an 81 win team and they ended up winning 89 and making it to the playoffs extremely unexpectedly with that uh, incredible September after Yelich got injured. And I was just sort of thinking about the hypothetical where if instead of overperforming their run differential by eight wins, they had underperformed their run differential by eight wins, which given, you know, the the variance that happens within baseball seasons, even if you know a team's true talent level, was, you know, roughly as likely and very possible. And I'm I wonder what conversation we would be having about the Brewers right now if they were the exact same players but had won 73 games last year with the exact same stats. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious too to know if you, I don't know, this would be speculative, but the Brewers, you know, they, they did a rebuild. It wasn't a super, super, it wasn't a total teardown or anything. They rebuilt pretty, pretty quickly and smoothly, but they did a rebuild and then they came out of it and they were, they were good and they made the NLCS and they were made the playoffs again. But I'm curious how, how long the window probably is thought to be with this core if the core is even still the same core and whether if they had won 73 games last year with the same run differential whether we would have seen them flee from competing and go back into a kind of a rebuild mode yeah you do wonder because i think everything around this team is kind of now built around christian yelich's contract they have him for three more seasons so he's a free agent after 2022 uh, they have a, a core of controllable players who will get very expensive by the time Yelich becomes a free agent. Guys you know, like Josh Hader, Keston Hero will be a lot more expensive then. They'll still have him through 2025. But um, I think everything kind of fits around that. I mean, Lorenzo Cain's contract was a five-year deal. They got him the same winner they traded for Yelich. He runs out after 2022 as well. So had they underperformed, I, I think we'd see... Kristen Yelich's name out there kind of in the the trade rumor mill the same way we see Mookie Betts and Chris Bryant right and Nolan Arenado like it's been the the winter of star players on the block which is also pretty unusual Uh, but I think because they've had this success I think because this front office seems to have at least an above average ability if not an elite ability to find and utilize mediocre pitching at a level that exceeds expectations. I mean, Yolis Chassin in 2018 is just the the prime example that comes to mind for me of a guy that was much better than anybody would have expected. Um, I, I think they also believe they can get it done with what looks like an ugly rotation on paper going into the season. And part of their success throughout the time that Craig Council has been the manager there has been dominating in September with expanded rosters, You know, giving guys an earlier hook, going to that bullpen sooner, and really leaning on depth when rosters expand. So it's going to be really interesting to see, not having added a lot to the rotation, at least in terms of like frontline starters, if they're able to still have similar success in September without the benefit of the larger roster. You mentioned the early hooks for starters, and over the last couple of years, the Brewers have, I, I believe both years, have led the majors in... Appearances by starters of exactly 18 or 19 or 20 batters faced, which suggests a, a real avoidance of the of specifically the third time through the order penalty. And I mean, those are still the exception. I mean, we're talking a few dozen of those games uh, a year. Um, but yeah, they're the shortest. Other than other than the cases where a team is using an opener explicitly, they have the shortest starter outings. Do you have a sense of whether? 
they see this as a transition kind of to something even more extreme like are is it possible that the brewers are remaking the starting rotation expectations in a in a more severe way or is it just a, a matter of who they had on their staff the last couple of years what made sense for those pitchers and it could just as easily kind of swing back the other way if they get a couple of good you know good performances from some of their top of the rotation starters I think it's more the latter. I think this is a tactical adjustment made by the organization, just kind of looking at the pieces they have in place. And the way their farm system is built right now, unless there are some amazing successes on the minor league development front, I don't think they're going to develop another ace anytime soon. Uh, you could maybe make an argument that Brandon Woodruff has ascended to that role. He's at least kind of got to this point where what they lost when Jimmy Nelson got hurt running the bases a couple of years ago, uh, has been replaced. I think he's at least that good, but there might be room for a bit more. And I think they're going to continue to lean into their depth in their bullpen. It's kind of a, maybe to a lot of people, a relative group of unknowns. I mean, Bobby Wall was a guy they acquired in a trade last year. He missed all of last season with a torn ACL. Um, but you add him, you add David Phelps, you know, you got Freddie Peralta coming off a, a really interesting winter ball stint where his velocity was up. His secondary pitches looked a lot better. Um, you might have a bridge to Josh Hader that's significantly improved. Hader might even be part of a bridge to Corey Knable once he's fully back in this bullpen, probably in mid to late April. So if they still kind of use that 18 to 20 batters-faced model for the starting rotation, or at least for the non-Woodruff starters, they can probably get away with it because they've got what looks like a very deep and effective bullpen. And a lot of those guys actually have minor league options left too, so they can kind of rotate some pieces on and off the bottom of the roster as well uh, to kind of manage workloads throughout the season. And there were trade rumors about Hayter early in the offseason, and I don't know how serious they were, but was that just a product of the fact that he did qualify as a Super 2, which means that even though he is still very affordable and a big bargain right now, that salary is going to climb quickly? Or was there some other motivation there because that bullpen is still really built around him? I think it all kind of traces back to some comments that David Stearns made around the winter meeting saying that they've listened to offers for everyone. And I uh-huh. think one of the reporters on hand said, oh, well, does that include Hater?" And he basically said, well, yeah. But I don't think it was a case where they are ever really actively shopping him. I think it was mm-hmm. teams called and said, what do you want for Josh Hader? And Stearns gave a very high asking price. And teams said, okay, thanks, bye, and hung up. Mm-hmm. And that was probably <laughs> the extent of those negotiations. Uh, It's interesting, though, because if you think back to that scenario you described, if this team had underperformed a year ago, Josh Hader would be the most valuable relief trade ship on the market. I mean, he still would be if they tried to trade him now, but you don't trade him away if you believe you can contend. I think even though there are limitations for just how valuable an elite reliever can be, you need a guy like that. You really want to have a guy like that, at least, if you have playoff aspirations, because he's a total game changer when you don't have the horses in your rotation that you can trust to get beyond the sixth inning. like They they just don't have that starting pitching depth to take an amazing piece out of the bullpen and try and cobble together those four to six critical outs they'd have to get in so many postseason games without him. So one of the big moves of this winter was the Luis Arias trade, and it's not off to the most auspicious start in that Arias broke his hamate bone, and so he's going to be out for a little while, at least maybe a, a delayed start to spring training or the season. But what do you think was the origin of that trade? Was it that the Brewers saw something in Arias that the Padres didn't? Was it just that he fit the Brewers roster better? And what the heck happened to Orlando? 
Orlando Arcia. <laughs> what happened to Arcia as the shortstop of the future? That went south. You know, with Arcia, it's frustrating when you watch him play on both sides of the ball because defensively, he makes spectacular plays. And part of the reason he does that is he has very good range. He can get to a lot of balls, and he has the arm strength to just make ridiculous throws. And then you'll see him boot a couple of routine balls in the same game or within the span of a couple of days. And that inconsistency really drags it down his value over the course of any given season. Uh, he's been a below average hitter every year. He's been in the big leagues. He'll go on a run where you start to think he's unlocking something and mm-hmm. it's just a hot streak and nothing else. And I think what they saw is an opportunity to make a move that a year prior to actually making that trade would have been impossible. Like Trent mm-hmm. Grisham for Luis Urias was not going to happen if you flip back to 2018. Urias has experienced this sort of weird thing. Maybe you guys have talked about this before where he got to the big leagues at a young age, didn't have immediate success, You know, got sent back down to AAA, has pretty clearly figured out AAA pitching, had a great year last year uh, with El Paso. And yet the perception of him as a player has changed a lot from where it was as a prospect to the point where if he had never failed in the big leagues yet, the expectations would be a lot higher. And I just think they kind of bought low on a guy who's always had a great hit tool. So he's got a pretty good patient approach at the plate as well. Uh, and I think there's a reason to believe, you know, with the increased fly balls he was hitting last year at AAA, that he's actually going to get to a lot more of that power now going forward. So uh, I think they actually saw a buy low opportunity. They may have seen Grisham as a guy that unlocked some things, but was kind of a luxury for them. Uh, having Yelich again for three more years, having Kane for three more years. They didn't really have a good place to play Trent Grisham every day. And with Arcia underperforming on both sides, it just made a lot of sense to try and upgrade the middle infield and buy low on a guy that was you know, a top 25 or a top 30 prospect uh, a little over a year ago. I've had a couple people suggest that part of the reason that the Brewers traded Grisham was because of uh, you know his goat status, having misplayed the ball that that the Nationals won the wild card game on, and that seemed like a, a real super stretch to me. Uh, I I felt like you know that was a weird play. It was a hard play. It took a, it took, it wasn't. I mean, it doesn't look like a hard play, but it took an odd hop, and the failure had happened throughout the inning already by you know all the base runners that were on base. So I have rejected that notion. But I'm just curious, are, are, is Trent Grisham going to be remembered in Milwaukee for, for that play for a long time, or does this sort of pass? You know what? I think it passes eventually. It would have been remembered longer had he stayed on the team, though. I, I think he'll be one of those guys that, oh, yeah, I remember when Trent Grisham you know, made that error? And the more people watch that replay, at least the more, the more that reasonable people watch that replay, they realize that ball had some funny side spin on it, took a really unusual bounce. Uh, And it was one of many things that went awry in that inning. You know, it's the play that stands out because it was kind of the culmination of a a series of bad things that happened. But I I think ultimately this is something that the Brewers fan base will will forget over time. But it's one of those things, too, if this year's Brewers and even the 2021 Brewers, if they're non-playoff teams, maybe you will still have some people that recall that bad memory of Grisham a little bit more often. We uh, throughout the year, Ben and I would uh, sometimes go back and forth on what the the most surprising home run total in the juice ball season was, which player we were most surprised to see on a leaderboard. And I think at the end of the year, I actually landed on on Kessenhura, who was, you know, a prospect who I think had hit. I think his career high in the minors was something like like 15 or something like that. And uh, the the prospect scouting reports were that 
It looks like 13. He had 13 the year before. And the prospect scouting report that I saw before the year at Baseball Prospectus was that, uh, quote, there's more raw power here than you might expect. It's average, maybe even a smidge above. And you'd expect Hero to get to almost all of it. So that would suggest, oh, well, this is a player who might be a 20 home run second baseman, which would be a pretty impressive thing. And then he hits 19 homers in AAA, and then he comes up to the majors and hits 19 and a half season in the majors. So that's 38 homers for a 22-year-old second baseman. Is it your sense from watching him and knowing about him that he is an extremely strong player now, a strong, like physically strong, or is it that he is such a good hitter, so good at finding uh, the ball with his barrel that he is always going to be able to, you know, to hit a lot of home runs in in an era like this because he's just so adept at hitting it? Uh, Or is it your feeling that this was a juiced ball season kind of fluke and that he is actually more of a high teens power hitter going forward? I think it is a case where you have a guy that has exceptional barrel control and you know he's always had a great hit tool going back to his time in college. I was a little surprised to see the strikeout rate jump up as much as it did at AAA and then of course with the Brewers got up over 30% last season. I think he's probably more of a 25 to 30 home run hitter in his peak years when you start to think about a normal baseball um, and the fact that this is a guy that can spray line drives all over the park. I mean, I think he's going to be a legitimately good hitter for a long time. Uh, so I would definitely say he's near the top of my list as well, as far as most surprising uh, sources of power last year. I mean, 38 home runs and 141 games between AAA and the big leagues, and those were split evenly. That was definitely a big surprise. But you look at where Keston here hits home runs, and you quickly realize like he's a legitimately good hitter. He was not merely the product of a more lively baseball. Yeah, and he was playing at a four-win-or-so pace from the day he got to the big leagues. I don't know if there's any sort of sophomore slump coming or whether he will just continue to be that guy in more games, but that's one reason to be potentially excited about the Brewers. Another, maybe, is Josh Lindblom, who is one of the players who could potentially shore up that rotation. He is coming off an MVP award and consecutive Cy Young Award equivalents in the KBO. And the Brewers, of course, had some modest success, at least, with Marcus Thames. And should we be expecting great things from Lindblom? Should we be expecting a sort of solid Merrill Kelly-level season and hoping for better? Or how are his skills expected to translate? And what, if anything, did he do differently in the KBO than he had done in his previous stints in the majors? Yeah, the big change for Lindblom really was twofold. Uh, he ditched the two-seamer for a four-seamer, and I think he was effectively locating that up in the zone more often, uh, something he's obviously going to have to do to have a lot of success with the move back into the big leagues. And then uh, it was the splitter as well. That was just a, a wipeout pitch. I mean, that was probably the most gifable pitch that Josh Lindblom was throwing. So if you look at any old highlights or any old clips on Twitter, especially, you're going to see that splitter making hitters look foolish. Uh, I do think Merrill Kelly's kind of a good starting point in terms of, of expectations. And it's not exciting. He's not the kind of guy that people are going to fawn over in, in fantasy leagues. But at the same time, when you need quality innings, and the Brewers absolutely do, I think Lindblom comes in and effectively gives them Chase Anderson at a reduced cost, right? Like he's going to give up some home runs here and there. Maybe it's a, a low fours ERA and maybe like a league average sort of whip. But it's good enough if you can do that for 150 or 160 innings at you know, about $3 million this year. So I think he kind of just fits in as part of the 
the Brewers' sort of hyper-efficient approach, like trying to replace the fringy 25, now 26-man roster players with guys who can do the job for half the price. You know how it goes with relievers, where sometimes you see a reliever one day and you think that you understand him very well. And so there was some day in I probably August when I saw Freddie Peralta come in, and I just thought, well, this is the best reliever in baseball. And of course, you know, he's probably not. But he was really incredible <laughs> in September. Uh, he had a 23% strikeout rate, uh, not strikeout rate, strike uh, swinging rate, 23% swinging strike rate. And um, I think he struck out 20 batters and like walked one or two and was very good. His velocity had jumped a bunch, everything like that. So you you mentioned that he, what did you say? He added a pitch or worked on a pitch or tweaked a pitch in, in winter ball. Did you say something like that? Yeah, they, they had him working more of this changeup. Um, so his fastball, curveball changeup. And the thing about Freddie Peralta's fastball has always been that it's not just a straight four-seamer. He'll cut it sometimes. He actually changes to a two-seamer grip a little bit. There's always been some deception in his delivery as well. So even when he was in the, the low 90s as a starter, you could kind of tell by the way hitters were reacting to it. That they just don't pick up the ball really well coming out of his hands. But Man, you talk about a player who one day, he does look amazing. He looks like he could be a dominant late-inning reliever, and the next day he just looks so lost that he should be sent down to double-A until he figures out command. Like, Freddie Peralta has a, a very wide range of outcomes, and he's a pretty important piece, I think, on that pitching staff. I mean, I, I mentioned the depth before, but I think he's one of those guys they're looking at to step up into a more prominent role. So Brewers catchers led the majors in framing runs last year, thanks largely to Yasmani Grandal, and Grandal is gone now. Omar Narvaez is in, and he is not a good framer, but I'm kind of interested in how they will distribute that playing time at catcher because they have this mix of players with potentially complementary skills because you have Narvaez, who has hit very well over the past couple of years, and he bats lefty. Then you've got Manny Pena, who has not hit particularly well, not terribly for a catcher but not well and he hits righty and he is a pretty good framer so I don't know if they think they can make Narvaez into a better receiver or whether there is some way to minimize his weakness while maximizing his strength do you think that will be a, a fairly even distribution of playing time or how do you think that shakes out I think it's probably close to like a two-thirds, one-third split in terms of starts, but it wouldn't surprise me if you get to the sixth or seventh inning of a game and you know you see either Narvaez exit or maybe move over to first base, depending on where things are at in the order. I think what they really believe in is Narvaez as a hitter being somewhat in the neighborhood of what Grandal is as a hitter, but obviously with the, the defensive differences, uh, they're not even close in terms of, of overall value. That power should, of course, play up with the move to Miller Park. That's that's to be expected. Um, but I would say, you know, if you're looking at 482 plate appearances last year for Narvaez in Seattle as kind of a, a baseline expectation, you're probably a little high. I go back to the 2018 season, too. I mean, this was a team that won the division with Eric Kratz and Manny Pena getting pretty much all the starts behind the plate. So uh, losing Grandal obviously hurts. I think the key in replacing him comes from getting greater contributions from guys like Urias, getting guys in the bullpen to step up, you know, finding some gold in that rotation. Uh, but yeah, a two-thirds, one-third split just seems really logical in terms of the starts with Pena coming off the bench a lot of times when he doesn't start. It's weird because, you know, if they replace, I mean, teams replace players with other players, different players all the time. And if they replace, like, for instance, if they had replaced Arcia with a power hitting bad defense shortstop, we would we wouldn't think, well, there was some like 
some system at play. We just say, well, they, they, Arcia, they didn't keep, and some other shortstop they got, and they thought that the package was better. Or if they replace, you know, a, a strikeout pitcher with a, you know, a ground ball pitcher, we don't think, ah, they're committing to ground balls. It just seems like, well, we're replacing one package with another package. But it is true that, like, what Ben said is I think the first thing that a lot of people thought of when they got Narvaez is it's like they went from the best framing catcher or one of the best framing catchers to, to one of the worst framing catchers, and that must mean something. Do you think it means anything, or is it just a matter of looking at, well, there's 30 qualified catchers in the world, and we can't afford one, and we can afford another, and it really does not even cross their minds what the particular distribution of their skill sets are? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like kind of this problem where there wasn't anyone at all like Grandal on the market. So unless you re-sign Grandal himself, you're getting a downgrade no matter what. How much of a downgrade are you willing to accept? I mean, that's a fair question to ask. And I, I just, I think it really came down to them maybe internally saying, it's great to have an elite framer, but it's okay if you don't, because there are plenty of successful teams that don't have an elite framer. Uh, I think even the Astros in recent years have not had an elite framing catcher. I mean, they've had a lot of success with that pitching staff anyway. So there are other things you can do. And then maybe longer term, as you look ahead beyond this season, maybe the Brewers have some feel for the idea that robot umps aren't that far away and framing won't matter at all at that time. Wanted to ask you about a couple bounce back candidates, or at least guys who are coming off down years and who, if they were to bounce back, would be big boons to the Brewers. And that's Lorenzo Kane on the offensive side and Corbin Burns on the pitching side. And Kane had a down year, certainly offensively. He had a career low BABIP. He's usually a very high BABIP guy. I know he was dealing with some thumb issues, but he's also getting up there in age. So what's the expectation for him? And then Burns, we've talked about on the podcast because it's just such a mystifying season. Someone who was a breakout candidate entering 2019 and then had this just off the charts home run per fly ball rate and spent some time in the minors and yet also had some encouraging peripherals. So I don't know if they are envisioning him. I think the last update I read was that he would go into spring training and prepare to start. But do you have any idea where he will end up? And is there any sort of post hype breakout (laughs) potential for him? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with Kane. I think in addition to the thumb injury, he had a knee injury he was playing through. I saw him foul so many balls off of his ankles last year when he was already hobbled. I, I just felt bad for the guy. It was just one one blow after another uh, just that he had to keep playing through. And because his defense was so valuable, and I think because he just wanted to play through it, he gutted it out, and the offensive numbers took a pretty big step back. I think if I were... Trying to come up with a, like a war projection for him for 2020, I'd say he's probably a three to three and a half win player in part because I think they would be wise to give him more occasional days off. Like Even if he's pushing Council to be out there almost every day, I think he needs a little bit more rest. I mean, he's going to be 34 in April, and I think if you want to keep his legs healthy, especially uh, giving him more occasional rest is, is one way to do that. Uh, the defense really hasn't fallen off all that much at this age. Coming off that gold glove season, had a, a few just amazing highlight reel catches. Of course, the one at the end of the year in Colorado and uh, the opening day one where he robbed uh, Jose Martinez from a home run stands out as well. Um, so I, I see definitely a nice bounce back. I don't know if we're going to see another five-plus win season from Lorenzo Cain, just given his age and, again, given the playing time. Mm-hmm. Burns is maddening. I mean, when you guys have talked about him, it's it's probably just that the fastball is way too straight and catches 
way too much of the zone. That's his biggest problem. And it's really puzzling when you look at command grades on him, and he's not supposed to be a bad command guy. Uh, it's kind of one of those things. The scouting report doesn't agree with the actual command grade results to this point. Is it correctable? It is a, it's a great question. I, I'm somewhat optimistic. The projections, because of how good he was in 2018, suggest that he's going to bounce back to some degree. But how do you not bounce back from an 882 ERA and a 184 whip, right? Like, <laughs> It just makes a lot of sense for them to try and develop him as a starter because the raw stuff is really good. Uh, but I think he needs to alter the approach and get away from that fastball a little bit. Even though it's not a low-velocity pitch, it is a meatball that opposing hitters just destroyed frequently last season. So he may have to kind of borrow a page from the old Yoli's Chassin game plan and get up to 35 or 40% slider usage consistently in order to be an effective starter or even possibly an effective reliever if that ends up becoming his role. Mm-hmm. At a Brewers fan event last week, some of the players were asked about sign stealing, and Christian Yelich denied that the Brewers have done any legal sign stealing, and Ryan Braun denied that the Brewers have even stolen signs legally from second base, I think, and granted, Ryan Braun does not have a perfect track record for honesty, but that's what they said, and maybe any team's players would be asked about sign stealing these days because it's on everyone's minds, but the Brewers have had some rumors swirl about them last November. November, the writer Jeff Jones tweeted that multiple players had told him that the Brewers were among the most egregious electronic sign stealers. And then there was that Twitter spat between Yelich and Yu Darvish this winter. And is this something that Brewers fans resent because nothing has been substantiated? There's no evidence, no, nothing concrete suggesting that the Brewers stole signs? Or is it something Brewers fans are worried about because they're anxious that something might come out? Or is this something that they're not even really mostly thinking about at all? I don't think it's really on their minds at all. I, I think that uh, Yelich Darvish Twitter interaction was <laughs> pretty bizarre. And then, yeah. I mean, I understand like if, if someone accuses you of cheating and you're not, you're going to snap back in a way that might not be the most measured and, and calm possible way. But I kind of felt like Yelich came off as a little bit of a heel in that exchange. Yeah, like it, was just a very, it was a very arrogant sort of response mm-hmm. to what I thought was a pretty soft accusation. Right. Um, and Darvish even then said that he wasn't accusing, even though it, it sort of seemed like he was implying at least. But yeah. 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 I mean, it was just one of those things where it was kind of like, OK, like I, I understand. I understand why Yelich was upset, but I thought he could have handled that situation better. Yes. Uh, but this is also a guy, if you guys remember, during the All-Star game, Tom Verducci was interviewing Yelich and he brought up PEDs. <laughs> like in the interview and the look on Yelich's face was just like, come on, man, like it's the all-star game. Like why, why are we going down this road right now? Right. So I don't know if, it, if this, you know, this accusation from Darvish was just yet another question prying into Yelich's you know, natural talent and ability. And mm-hmm. if that just kind of struck a nerve with him. But again, I, I thought it was a pretty odd response for a guy that comes off as very likable more often than not. Yeah. All right, and my last question about the Brewers is, and we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but looking forward, the Brewers had this sort of unusual rebuild where they didn't really tank and didn't bottom out, and they just got good again, which was great. They got a lot of plaudits for that, deservedly so. I think they were very adept at making moves and bringing in low-profile players who overperformed, but that is not an easy thing to 
do continuously. And according to roster resource, 25% of the players on the Brewers roster are homegrown. That's their 40-man roster. And that's a lower figure than every other team except the Marlins, the Mariners, and the Giants. And because the Brewers didn't really get terrible and get good again and and rely on top draft picks, they didn't really have this homegrown core that a lot of successful teams, the other super teams, have. And according to BP, the Brewers' farm system right now ranks dead last. It also ranked dead last in 2011, which was the last time the team made the playoffs until 2018. And they were one of two teams without a prospect in the BP Top 101 Prospects, and I think the only team without a prospect in the MLB.com Top 100. So Sam sort of asked this before, but is there a concern that without that young cost-controlled core beyond, you know, Yelich or a couple guys, that this might be difficult to sustain? Yeah, I think in large part because they also don't have even kind of the depth prospects that you'd want to have knocking on the door to contribute. Right. And a lot of their top prospects are guys that they just drafted or just signed internationally in the last year. Um, So you're talking about guys that are two or three years away. You're talking about guys that have to have a breakout season in the minors just to crack top 100 prospect list, just to improve their standing enough as trade chips to give you options in season. You know, if the Brewers are tracking towards winning the division or at least staying in the wild card race, when we get to July, they don't have a lot of exciting prospects that they can offer up. I think it would be another trade deadline similar to what we saw a year ago. And give David Stern some credit. I mean, Jordan Lyles was outstanding for the final two months. And Drew Pomeranz as a reliever was just absolutely nasty. He was a difference maker. But it's very difficult, as you said, to continually find those overlooked and undervalued pieces and get to them before other teams. And it's more difficult, I think, coming up in 2020 because if the offseason spending of middle of the pack teams is any indication there will be more aggressive teams going into the trade deadline this year than there were last summer so you just have more competition on the trade market and if just about every other contender or any other contending team has a better farm system they can put together better offers than you can so I think it is an uphill battle and uh, the Limited long-term talent is definitely a concern, which probably is where some of that earlier frustration I mentioned is coming from. I think the fan base can look at this team and say, the time is now. We have to, if if we're going to get a championship in Milwaukee, it's going to be while Christian Yelich is on that contract. It's probably not going to be immediately after that because they may have to go into that deep rebuild and actually trade away some of their current core. I mean, by that time, Keston Hero should be an established star, but he might be one of their best trade chips two or three years from now. All right. Well, I warned you that we would end with a win total prediction, and here we are. So how many games will the Brewers win in 2020? I'm going to say 84, and Mm -hmm. uh, I think I've come to a point where I've accepted that there probably isn't a big late offseason move uh, on the trade front. I mean, there's not really any impact free agents that make a lot of sense for this team. Yasiel Puig's the best player left at this point, and they don't really need another outfielder. So uh, unless there are some really big steps forward from Corbin Burns and uh, Freddie Peralta and, and some of the younger players on this core who are in more prominent roles now, I just I don't see them exceeding expectations. The, the Reds are, are much better than they were. You know, the Cubs have done almost nothing this offseason, but they're still good. 
And the Cardinals, as you guys know, are just the ultimate cockroaches of the league. Like they, <laughs> you just can never count them out either. So it's a legitimate four team race just within the division. I think there are major concerns in the back of the rotation. Uh, I think they're going to be a very good team and a very fun team to watch again, but I think they're going to come up just short of making the postseason for the third consecutive year. Yeah, well, your colleague C. Trent on our first segment of this show predicted 86 wins for the Reds. So if he's right, and I don't doubt him, then uh, 84 is not going to do it. Sorry, Brewers. (laughs) I guess that's that. Yep, that's it. Cancel the season. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can find Derek on Twitter at his name, Derek Van Riper, and you can read him and hear him all over The Athletic. Thank you very much, Derek. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Trent and Derek for joining us. You're going to hear from a lot of athletic writers over the next six weeks or so. We will wrap up this series just a few days before opening day if we stick to our schedule. It gets to be a grind from a scheduling perspective, especially once a lot of our guests go to spring training, but it is a good primer for the season. I think it gets you all ready for opening day. It gets us ready for opening day, reminds us who's on what team, and gives us a sense of some of the storylines heading into the season and it helps us attract new listeners because our guests come on and they promote the episode to their followers so a lot of people have gotten hooked via the team preview episodes and stuck with us there was one year where i made a poll in the facebook group and i asked people do you want us to keep doing the team preview should we do it again it was something like 98 percent in favor of doing it again so that sent a pretty clear message most of you like the team preview pods you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up to pledge their support, contribute a small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, and get themselves access to some perks. Derek, Meredith Kite, David Whitcomb, Jeremy Reynolds, and Olaf Hong. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming. As mentioned, we will continue to take emails throughout this team preview series. You can reach us at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. Okay.